Today is Friday, June twenty fourth, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, villagers in eastern Ukraine face a constant barrage of shelling day in and day out. A lot of people have already evacuated. Some people are still trying to leave, but you see a lot of people who don't want to leave. Aid groups and the Taliban continue to struggle to reach victims of Afghanistan's devastating quake. The Taliban and the international community that fled their takeover are struggling to bring help to the disaster's victims. And former U.S. Justice Department officials say former President Trump tried to manipulate the department to hold on to power. We'll have these stories and more next. As Russian soldiers pound the last piece of land under Ukrainian control in the eastern Luhansk province, Ukrainian forces are staying put, fighting back. Freelance reporter Sam Mednick, who just left Kramatorsk, a city in the northern portion of Donetsk in eastern Ukraine, says many villagers who have seen the worst fighting in eastern Ukraine have dug in as well. She tells me that they think it's too late to leave. I mean, you see a lot of people who are just living under constant shelling day after day. You see people who, you know, a lot of people have already evacuated. Some people are still trying to leave, but you see a lot of people who don't want to leave. You know, they're just enduring this this relentless shelling. I was in the town of Lizychansk, uh, which is one of the hardest hit towns right now, right across from Severodonetsk, which is being encircled by Russian troops at the moment. And you, there were periods where it was just shelling every few minutes. Constantly, and you had people, you know, in bunkers, in dark bunkers, just staying there, you know, all day, not leaving. I spoke to the Red Cross, who said they had a team of 18 people living and working in, uh, you know, a bomb shelter, basically going around the town on bicycles because they don't have any cars, trying to deliver food to people. There's one water pump in the city. There's no access to water. So the situation's pretty dire in, in some of these towns, particularly on the humanitarian front and then, and then of course, on the, on the security front. You mentioned people just don't want to leave. Does that include perfectly healthy people who are not elderly or don't have, you know, problems getting around or, you know, a, a condition? I mean, they just are resolute about staying there? Yes, I mean, not a lot of the people are elderly or, or they, you know, have a condition, so it makes it harder for them to leave. But a lot of people, I mean, some people just said, you know, it's too late to leave. Had I wanted to leave, I would have left months ago. Uh, some people, you know, volunteers who had spoken to some people who didn't want to leave said that there's a big fear of the unknown. And a lot of people don't realize that if they do go, they might have access to assistance, uh, you know, that they can get help. So a lot of people are saying, where am I going to go? And, you know, where am I going to live? People say that a lot of the people who left initially, they had more means, more financial means, and they could up and move more easily. And now people are more vulnerable, and for them to leave, it's harder. So a lot of them are just saying, you know what, I'm going to stay here. Did people have the impression that this was going to be more or less a month or two or three at the most, and now it's going in for the long haul, and they weren't prepared for that? I think that's definitely something that I've seen because I was here a few months ago at the start of the invasion in March, and you heard people saying, you know, like everyone, no one really knew what was going to happen, and everyone thought, 
you know, he was going to go fairly quickly and, and, and people weren't quite sure. Now you see a shift where people, particularly I think also displaced people even to the west of the country are saying, okay, this, this is going to take, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go back home. Like this is going to be a protracted crisis. You see aid agencies also starting to shift gears and say the same thing. So you're starting to see a shift in this mentality. People saying, you know, this is, this is going to continue. And what does that mean for me? Where do I go? What do I do next? And militarily, have there been a shift in tactics, too, as far as not just the civilians, but the soldiers? Do you see what's going on strategically at all? I mean, what the soldiers have told me, uh, you know, what what analysts say is that it's become, you know, it's shifted into a war of an artillery battle. So you're just seeing both sides shoot artillery back and forth, back and forth, whereas at the beginning you had more ground troops, uh, you had more urban combat, uh, and now it's just, you know, shooting back and forth, turning into a war of attrition, trying to wear the other side down. Uh, You know, Russia is trying to take uh, the east and the Donbass, and I think also towards the south. But, you know, it's it's unclear if they'll be able to do that, but they're closing in on Luhansk right now. Uh, And if they do that, then their next, you know, goal would be Donetsk. And if that happens, would it be that the the Ukrainians would not have access anymore to the Black Sea ports? If they take uh, Odessa, if they take the city of Odessa, they won't have access to the Black Sea ports. At the moment... That does not look imminent. However, if they do, you know, push towards Odessa and, and take that and take Mykolaiv, the town near Odessa, and then take Odessa, which is the larger town, they'll have complete control of the Black Sea ports. That is freelance reporter Sam Mednick. She was speaking with me from the city of Lviv in western Ukraine. The conflict, now into its fourth month, is causing disruptions around the world from what President Joe Biden terms a Putin price hike for American petroleum to a looming global food crisis. On Wednesday, Biden said he was taking steps to try to offset the effects, something he said he'll be focusing on as G7 and NATO leaders meet next week in Europe and an upcoming Mideast trip. The OA's Anita Powell reports from the White House. President Joe Biden says he gets it, that no one likes to spend more for essentials like fuel and food, but that painful price hikes are an inevitable result of a brutal conflict on the other side of the world. Russian President Vladimir Putin's ongoing assault on Ukraine. We cut off Russian oil into the United States, and our partners in Europe did the same, knowing that we would see higher gas prices. We could have turned a blind eye to Putin's murderous ways. The price of gas wouldn't have spiked the way it has. I believe that would have been wrong. Gas prices have risen globally amid the conflict, due in part to tough sanctions on Russian oil and goods, and the global pandemic, which has disrupted supply chains and productivity. Biden will meet with Saudi Arabian leaders in July in an effort to persuade the global oil cartel to increase supply. And domestically, he's calling for Congress to suspend the federal gas tax and for states to suspend their fuel taxes. His Republican opponents say they oppose it. Republican Senator John Thune. What the administration, of course, is coming up with is yet another gimmick, uh, another band-aid, and something they know is dead on arrival up here in Congress. Putin also doesn't appear to be backing down. We are proud that during the special military operation, our fighters act with courage, professionalism, like real heroes. Russian soldiers of different nationalities fight shoulder to shoulder. In this unit, in the faith of correctness of their cause, in the enormous popular support which our soldiers feel, lies the great invincible force of Russia. Analysts say Biden's focus on the war's economic impacts is critical to maintain public support. 
Kathleen McInnes is a senior fellow and director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. It makes a lot of sense that Biden is focusing on the Putin price hike. Uh, it's because the as the war progresses, we're seeing it impact different NATO economies in different ways. Right. And and and, and um, the price hikes at, at the gas pumps here in, in the United States is one key way. Well, how do you can keep support for a war? How do you um, keep al- allied publics on board as the war goes on? And people are starting to feel it in different ways and feel it in their pocketbooks. That that's a big challenge for NATO and the United States. The White House says higher prices aren't the only casualty of war. Russia is also blocking exports of Ukrainian grain, causing shocks around the world as far away as Africa. That is likely to be a topic when leaders of the world's seven wealthiest nations meet next week in Germany. John Kirby is coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council. President Putin is no kidding weaponizing food. Let's let's just call it what it is. He's weaponizing food. He's got an essential blockade there in the Black Sea so that nothing can leave by sea. And that's, of course, how Ukraine has historically gotten its grain to markets. And so the president's working with leaders around the world to see if there's other overland ways we can do that. Ukraine's president says this support makes a difference as the nation continues to fight against Russian forces. Ukrainian president Vladimir Zelensky. The lives of thousands of people depend directly on the speed of our partners, on the speed of how they implement their decisions to help Ukraine. But as this war grinds into a fifth month, who pays the highest price of all? Ordinary people. Anita Kalpiowin News, the White House. The International Energy Agency has warned that Russia could cut gas supplies to Europe altogether in order to boost its political leverage after its invasion of Ukraine. As Henry Ridgewell reports, Europe is scrambling to avoid an energy crisis this winter. Russia has severely restricted gas flows to Europe in recent days. The Kremlin blames technical issues caused by sanctions. Europe accuses the Kremlin of playing geopolitics. A full cut-off would plunge Europe into an energy crisis, says analyst Tom Marzek-Manser, head of gas analytics at the firm Independent Commodity Intelligence Services. Gas supplies from Russia at the moment, uh, pipeline supplies that is, uh, are literally a quarter of what they were a year ago. Um, so the volumes are very, very low um, and, and clearly that's, that's causing concerns. It means rebuilding storages, storage stocks uh, ahead of the, the upcoming winter is that much more difficult. Europe wants to fill its gas storage to 80% of capacity by November. Currently, it's around 55%. The soaring gas price since its invasion of Ukraine has benefited Russia. Again, Tom Marzek-Manser. A huge amount of money has been made in in a short period of time, which is probably going to carry carry Gazprom through for the the next few years, at least, in terms of being able to really restrict flows but still um, have money in the bank. Germany gets around a third of its gas from Russia. The government declared Thursday it had entered the phase two alarm stage of its emergency gas plan, calling on Germans to reduce their gas consumption. Gas is from now on a knappes gut. Robert Habeck, the German economy minister and vice-chancellor, said gas is from now on in short supply in Germany. Consumers must play their part, says analyst Claudia Kempfert. 
diese Situation war zu erwarten, dass sie früher oder später... It was expected that this situation would come sooner or later, Kempfert said. But what is important now is that we do everything we can to save gas. That also includes industry, raising fears that an energy crunch could plunge Europe into recession. Again, analyst Tom Marzik Mansa. The industrial demand sector, the power sector, is really going to have to play a key role in conserving gas. We've seen uh, proposals uh, and, and, uh, from, from, from many governments around Europe to permit continued use of coal. That reverses Europe's pledge to phase out coal and other fossil fuels. Analyst Claudia Kempfert said Europe needs a much faster expansion of renewable energies. European leaders have been scrambling to find alternatives to Russian gas. US liquefied natural gas or LNG imports have risen sharply. The EU this month signed a deal to boost liquefied natural gas supplied from Israel and Egypt. But analysts say Europe will struggle to replace Russian gas before the winter, and a cold season would exacerbate the crisis. Henry Ridgewell for VOA News, London. In Afghanistan, survivors are digging by hand after an earthquake caused havoc and tragedy. Associated Press correspondent Charles de la Desba has more. The Taliban and the international community that fled their takeover are struggling to bring help to the disaster's victims. State media reporting Wednesday's quake killing 1,000 people at least. In the first independent count, the United Nations Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs says around 770 people had been killed in Paktika and Kost provinces. Under a leaden sky, men dig a line of graves in one village as they try to lay the dead to rest quickly, in line with Muslim tradition. I'm Charles Dilladesma. In its fifth hearing on the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, a congressional panel presented evidence about how former President Donald Trump tried to manipulate the Justice Department to stay in the White House. I asked VOA congressional correspondent Catherine Gibson about the highlights in Thursday's testimony. We heard from many of the attorneys general's who served in the last few weeks of his presidency. We heard, of course, from Bill Barr in tape deposition, from Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue. And they really laid out in some startling detail exactly what Trump was saying and doing in those last weeks, telling them to, quote, call the election results invalid and just leave it up to Trump himself and Republican members of Congress to do the rest which is meant to, we are meant to understand, is overturn the 2020 election results. Now, for some of our international listeners, the U.S. Justice Department has always prided itself on being independent from any White House. No matter what president is in office, no matter what party they're in, they are supposed to be separate, and it is not their job to declare election results invalid. So to really hear in more detail about exactly what was happening in those weeks is pretty startling. How important were these officials to upholding the law and making sure that the former president was not able to carry out his scheme of overturning the elections? Well, committee members were clear today talking about just how important it was that each one of these attorneys generals and acting attorney generals were in telling Trump that the election results were not fraudulent that they could not be overturned, and that they would not 
play a role in helping Trump with his attempts to overturn those results. And at one point, basically had to tell the former president that if he kept replacing attorneys generals, then they would not have a functioning U.S. Department of Justice because people would not want to serve under someone who is helping Trump with those fraudulent claims. Describe the kind of pressure these people were under. How often did Trump talk to them personally, and what was he telling them exactly? Each one of them detailed multiple phone calls, often on holidays, on New Year's Eve, on New Year's Day, about being called in on Sundays when they did not expect to be called into the White House for meetings. They described a sustained pressure campaign across all of their leaderships of the U.S. Justice Department and leading up to the final hours in January 6th when Trump was telling them that they still had to allow him to call these illegal election results and leave it up to him and the Republican members of Congress. And if they didn't, which they didn't, how did he threaten them? He would threaten them by saying that they would simply be replaced, that they would lose their reputation, that they would not have their jobs. And each one of them, in turn, said that this was more important, that they took their oath of office more seriously than their reputations and their jobs, and said that if they served at the pleasure of the president of the United States, but that the U.S. Justice Department would not declare the results of the 2020 election invalid. That's VOA congressional correspondent Catherine Gibson speaking with me just minutes after the hearing wrapped up for the day. You're listening to VOA News. In other news, European Union leaders have agreed to make Ukraine a candidate for EU membership. The decision sets in motion what could be a years-long process that could move the country further away from Russia's influence and tie it more closely to the West. The decision by the 27-nation bloc to grant Ukraine candidate status has been quick by EU membership standards. Ukraine applied days after Russia invaded the country. Police in Ecuador yesterday dispersed protesters trying to enter Congress. Police used tear gas this week to disperse hundreds of Ecuadorans taking part in the ninth day of indigenous-led fuel price protests the military described as a grave threat. You're listening to VOA's International Edition. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that Americans have a right to carry firearms in public for self-defense. Gun groups in America are celebrating the ruling. AP correspondent Shelley Adler reports. While many gun safety experts feel the ruling will make the country less safe, Eric Pratt, who's the senior vice president of Virginia-based Gun Owners of America, totally disagrees. This will make a difference in our schools. Uh, This will make a difference in supermarkets like the one in Buffalo. Uh, This will make a huge difference, uh, allowing people who are law-abiding to be able to protect themselves. That's not the sentiment of New York City Mayor Eric Adams. We cannot allow New York to become the wild, wild west. I'm Shelley Adler. This is VOA News. This is Science in a Minute. One of the most mysterious and fascinating celestial objects is a black hole. Thanks to today's advanced astronomical technology, scientists are learning more as they make incredible discoveries. 
A team of astronomers led by researchers at the Australian National University in Canberra say that they've recently found the fastest growing black hole of the past 9 billion years. They say that the supermassive black hole, identified as J1144, eats the amount of material comparable to one Earth every second. It's so luminous that the team says it glows about 7,000 times brighter than all the light from the Milky Way. J1144 has a reported mass of approximately 2.6 billion suns and is located in the constellation Centaurus. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. A restaurant in Australia is focused on giving bad service, and customers love it. The AP's Ed Donahue has the story. At Karen's Diner in Sydney, the staff is rude. Take the burger. Don't touch me. I mean, they made everyone moo at me because I'm vegan. <laughs> the burgers are said to be great at Karen's. You're greeted by people like Alex Gonzalez. The customer is always right at pretty much every other hospital venue. Here, the customer is always wrong. and There's nothing they can do to be right except maybe tip us like $500. The diner's concept is based on the term Karen, describing a person who complains about everything and anything. Mitch Ransley is the general manager. People love to be abused apparently. They like to be sworn at. They like to shout at waiters while waiters shout at them. Karen's Diner is catching on. This is much cheaper than going to my dominatrix. More Karen's Diners have opened or are opening in Australia and one just opened in Britain. Go. Get out. Don't come back. I'm Ed Donahue. To all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and much, much more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been VOA's International Edition. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. Have a peaceful weekend. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Friday, June 3rd, marked 100 days since Russian President Vladimir Putin instigated a massive deadly war against Ukraine. Over the last weeks and months, Putin waged a brutal war against the people of Ukraine. The Russian military specifically targeted non-combatants, apartment buildings, railroad stations, schools, and hospitals. Thousands died and millions more were displaced. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees estimates that two of every three Ukrainian children were displaced from their homes. In the 100 days since Russia's full-scale invasion began, the UNHCR registered nearly 7 million border crossings out of Ukraine. But the Ukrainians are fighting back, and they have had success. They are regaining ground lost in the initial days of Russia's assault. They have liberated towns and villages, pushing back the invaders, recording the horrible atrocities committed by Russia's forces. And where just a few months ago Ukrainians crossed borders to safety, they are now returning to help rebuild their country. At least two million have already returned to Ukraine, according to the UNHCR.
In the 100 days since Russian President Putin ordered his forces to further invade Ukraine, the world has seen the courage and determination of the people of Ukraine as they fight for their country, said Secretary of State Antony Blinken. The United States, along with our friends and allies, stands by Ukraine and offers maximum support. Since February 24th, the United States has provided more than $6.3 billion of security, humanitarian, and economic assistance to help Ukraine prevail, said Secretary Blinken. We again call on President Putin to immediately end this conflict and all the suffering and global upheaval his war of choice has caused. Neither the United States nor our allies and partners seek to prolong the war to inflict pain on Russia. We greatly respect the citizens of Russia who are not our enemy and who deserve a better future than what continued war and increasing repression will bring, he said. To the families of Ukraine who have lost loved ones, who have been separated by violence, whose villages, apartments, schools, and hospitals have been hit by bombs, shells, and missiles, who have been sent to and survived Russia's so-called filtration camps, the United States stands with you. We will help you defend your sovereignty and territorial integrity, and we will help you rebuild when this war is over. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 